computer storage is low? <laughs> what what kind of janky ass computer is he using? <laughs> he should be using a MacBook Pro. I don't know what the f*** he's doing. <laughs> like, how much space is this fucking... <laughs> how is this possible? Like, what the f***? I'm very sure he's using a MacBook Pro, which means I do not know what he loaded. His what computer. the f*** is like, how much porn do you... <laughs> exactly. So like, Jangan, you gotta quit the porn, buddy. <laughs> All right. Hello, Barbarians, and welcome to the 11th episode of the LLB Podcast, Low-Level Barbarians, from Asia on Asia with discussion and debate on trending topics. With us, myself, Alex, typically your host of EOA, Min of the High Ground, Dave Chang. Morning, hey, Dave. guys. Morning. Looking younger for some reason. With a nice, fresh, <laughs> white shirt. <laughs> And uh, we have uh, Jangan, the information superconnector. How are you, sir? I'm relegated to the smallest meeting room in the office because uh, people are saying that I'm making too much noise when I'm recording this. Oh, really? But yeah. you mostly you sit quiet and you don't talk that loud, do you? Okay, according to them. Uh, and today we're missing, sadly, uh, the master of technical difficulties, Andrew G. Uh, he missed his, uh, he's, he has a delayed flight, so he won't be joining us sadly. You know, we could have used his insights, but uh, nonetheless, I think we'll still have a good discussion. So first topic, I think this is, you know, the elephant in the room, we can't avoid this, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, yeah, Dave and I were briefly chatting about this yesterday. It's, it's hard, it's hard to come up with something to talk about this, right? Because a lot of the angles have been discussed already on the media circuits, on podcasts. So I don't know. For, for me, though, I guess when I started looking at the Ukraine invasion and how to think about it was trying to understand like nature of war of what we've been seeing in the past few decades. Right. So because I think in the back of my mind, I know that America has been at war for the past 30 years in the Middle East. So I was just trying to compare and contextualize. So I don't know. Do you guys know how many troops have been sent to the Middle East between Iraq and Afghanistan since 2001? Can you guess? You mean deploy? Twenty thousand? No, more than that. It should be two to three hundred. Wait, at Iraq and Afghanistan for two decades, right? From two thousand one till twenty twenty one, about because we pulled out already from both countries. Twenty 2020 twenty, then twenty twenty one. It's gotta be like at least half a million. One point nine to three million people were deployed. Yeah, that makes across sense across two decades, right? So, uh, so, so that's Alex, and this is this is from yeah. If a person is sent there twice, does it count as? Two times or just one time? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So they, they were counting. I think they also counted uh, people who served more than once, but it was like average of two or three. Like, yep. I forget that's what how, the actual number that, that's, that's how yeah. uh, live streaming websites count viewers. But anyway, so. <laughs> well, still, I mean, we're talking in the millions, right? <laughs> I mean, if, if everyone was sent one time, right, we're talking 150 to, you know, 100 to 150,000 people sent every year. Um, so, and then how, how many people do you think have died as a direct, direct conflict? From the war, do you think? Including civilian casualties. No, not not civilian. Just US military personnel. No, I think just direct casualties from both sides, I think. It's like estimated. This is from the, the Watson Institute of Brown University, by the way. So you could fact check it. Uh it's gotta be hundreds of thousands as well. Yeah, it's about two hundred and forty-six thousand. And then the, if you include civilians, it's a, like a few more hundred thousand apparently. So Right. So if you put that to you know context of scale, I think I, I didn't dig into the other wars. Ukraine's been fighting Russia in the Donbass region for eight years. 
I think uh, in the past few decades, uh, Russia invaded a few other countries, right? So it's like the war is nothing new, but I would argue for the majority of the world, war is just so far in the back of our mind. Like we don't think or feel it every day. But if you look at the context, you know, what the Americans have been doing invading versus what Russia is doing, it's about the same scale. I think at the border, when there was escalating, there was about 150,000 troops on the border of Ukraine going in, right? So like, that just begged the question to me, is like, why do people care all of a sudden about war? And what, what do you guys think that's the case? You know, Ameri like war is nothing new, apparently. But why now is the media, or am I wrong? Is, you know, maybe it's the same reaction we had before. I think, a few, I think a few things, right? Um, so when when America launches the invasion, um, it just, I mean, it's, it's always in a, in a sort of far-flung uh, place that, uh, that, that that's, that's distant from what we're exposed to on a daily basis. And it, I, I think even the war in Yemen, I mean, there was, um, there was one or two attacks in Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi, but it, it's, it is still quite distant. But, but this... Uh, for a lot of people, and especially, I, I'm presuming that you guys have lots of European friends, and this is very close to home for, for many of them. Western Europe, so, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, even people in Eastern Europe, they, they get scared because um, because suddenly they realize that okay, um, the world order they have been living in, um, the uh, I mean, is shattered. So so you can't have this kind mm. of invasion happening in the heart of Europe now, um, which is unimaginable for lots of people. I mean. I, I would presume for people who are of a different generation who have been through wars, maybe not early 1990s in, in the Balkans, etc. So, yeah. so maybe maybe this comes as something which is not, uh, not sure. really that of a shock because you, you know how war feels like. But but for many people, this is unimaginable. For the younger generation especially, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and one thing I've, I've been... So so I was, I was discussing with, with, with the friends um, before before the invasion started, um, and, and 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 my thought was actually, uh, I didn't think that Putin would invade Ukraine. To be honest, so um, yeah. and 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 I based on my sort of assessment on two things. First, I mean, if you talk to people in Russia, that there didn't seem to be any sort of propaganda war saying that hey, this guy Zelensky, he's a demon. We must, you know, mm. you know, you know, we're trying to launch away. Even the US, I mean, before they went to Iraq, they have to sort of. Um, uh, launched a propaganda machine. machine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we didn't see that happening in Russia. So and um, and also another thing which which I, I use as a proxy is that I mean Putin had a, had a chat with uh, with Xi right at, at the Winter, Winter mm -hmm. Olympics, um, and I presume that if he really wanted to do something, he would probably um, have indicated something to Xi. But um, but before the invasion, we didn't see any sign from the embassy of China in in Kiev saying that hey, we must evacuate. Bear in mind that mm. um, that they issued evacuation notice in Afghanistan a few months before the U.S. withdrawal. So, mm. so that was my assessment. Um, and uh, but apparently I was wrong. So, so I'm trying to figure out um, whether the 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 invasion was planned, or it was because I mean he was um, previously bluffing. But because of circumstances and uh, things went out of control, and uh, and uh, he suddenly pulled the, pulled the trigger. Because if you look at many of the operations of Russian troops on the ground, it doesn't seem to be that well coordinated. It doesn't seem to be something which is very well planned. Can I ask you how are you basing your assessment off that? Because the media, from depending on which media source you're looking at, mm -hmm. you're going to hear varying different things from you know propaganda to psyops to one narrative to the other narrative so how do you know it's not as effective as you say because they seem to have covered ground very fast right I, you know I, I think I mean 
come on, it's, it's 2020. I mean, uh, not saying that uh, who is right, who is wrong, but uh, but if you are launching a war against the enemy, uh, you probably you probably don't want the leader to be right in the center of the ah, city, true. which you are supposed to surround, and still tweet. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably true. Yeah. So 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 I I think the well, first phase, yeah. So so they didn't jump the the, the, the communication networks. I, I, I don't see know what why. You mean. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's my okay. Sense, that's right? fair. So anyway, so it's um it's it's very I mean it's very hard to predict what will happen, um because by the time I mean by the time we we release this episode, it's, it's a few days after we have talked right now, yeah, and uh, things might have evolved very differently, and and on the ground things are very very hard to predict, things could change, and yeah. one miscalculation could lead to very different results, but 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 what I do yeah. think is that uh, it's um it's Quite difficult for them to reach a, a negotiated outcome because um, obviously putting, I mean, having dedicated so much resources into into yeah. this conflict, I mean, he will probably not want to go back empty-handed because that will undermine his leg legitimacy in Russia. Yeah, I think. Well, I think everyone's showing face too, right? So even Zelensky has to. Even I think even admitted it that he's saying that he's open to talking, but he knows it's not going to lead anywhere. But you still have to show face to the world that you're trying to resolve it by other means, right? Yep. Dave, how do you feel about this? Um, there's a lot to talk about. So, sorry, I, I just I'm, let's get straight to it. Um, I don't know. So I actually I had the same thought as you, Alex. I'm just trying to evaluate over the weekend, over the last couple of days, like what is different about this particular war, uh, especially vis-a-vis -vis the context of the 2008 war uh, where Russia invaded Georgia, right? So that's actually a lot of similarities between the two scenarios. So for those of you who don't remember it in 08, uh, Russia invaded Georgia also right during the Olympics. It was during the 2000, it was like literally wow. in the middle of the 08 Beijing Olympics. Holding up tradition, I guess. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a tradition. It's Russian tradition. Let's invade a country during the yeah. Olympics. <laughs> Remind everyone every four years yeah 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 exactly and but there's there's so there's a lot of similarities right so so georgia is was also obviously a former soviet um uh state source for former soviet territory and it the pretext for it was actually very similar so in 08 uh i believe when i believe that was the year that nato actually passed the resolution to offer both ukraine and georgia membership into nato Right. And Putin said essentially the same thing that he's saying now is that this is like a, a red line for me. And and I you know, this is a no go. And, and very, very also very similar. So there in Georgia at the time, there were these two sort of like uh, breakaway separatist regions. Uh, I'm going to really butcher the pronunciation of them. It's called it, one of them was called like South Ossetia and then Abba, Abakazia. Right. Uh, so it's very similar to what's well, happening. We can't verify that for you, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, you guys can't verify that for me, right? but so I apologize to whoever is listening <laughs> from those regions. I'm, I'm sorry, I butchered the pronunciation. And so I, I think, so I think this, like, if you look at that and compare these two scenarios, it's very telling. Or there's there's a lot of sort of um, conclusions you can draw. So that war lasted for 12 days. So Russia came in, they invaded for 12 days, they achieved, they basically uh, took control of the capital, and then uh, at the end of a 12 day. Uh, you know, conflict, they basically recognize those two breakaway regions as separate autonomous um, territories. Yeah. 
uh, and and they left. And so one of the reasons why I think you know we're talking about like why the Russian military doesn't seem to be performing um, as well is I think they did not expect um, this level of resistance. I think they were thinking it'd be a quick, easy win, right? So um, again, yeah. I was listening to reports about this. So essentially, it sounds like they're 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 not using combined arms strategy and they're they're it's sort of like a very piecemeal operation and they haven't really um brought into uh sort of like play their most effective tools so there's talks of them now evaluating uh sort of like cluster munitions artillery uh and just being sort of like ramping up the escalation yeah. uh, the amount of force that they're willing to use so that's 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 mm -hmm. one thing um so and i so but yeah so back to the question i think that's that's really the more interesting question is like what what is different about this time and what is different than say 2008 right so i agree with jungan yeah. number one yeah georgia is some far-flung country that's right over by it's like a small country it, yeah and also it's in it's in that region it's like it's by Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan. I mean, if we're being a little bit blunt, I mean, like if, part... if, if you just just think about the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, it didn't receive as much attention as uh, as what's happening now, right? I mean, exactly. Last year, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's in this far flung corner of the world that honestly Western media does not really care about that much, right? It's and uh, it's obviously much smaller, right? Ukraine is like I think the second largest country by landmass in well, in Europe. Well, I. I yeah, I think Jankan's point also stands that for Western Europe, given the size of Ukraine, it's like 44 million people versus uh, Georgia, which is like 3 million people. It, it's a bit more existential for Western European people than what the question is, why does American media care about it so much? Is so this, it just yeah. an excuse for another news cycle? Yeah, so this is this is actually the, yeah, so this, yeah, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. I think this is the most pertinent question. And I think for me, the main difference that I can think about between 2008 and 2022 in the context of America is the narrative that america is a declining empire was not nearly as prevalent then yeah. as it is now and also this is mirrored also both internally and externally externally we all live abroad and as americans we we, under, we can see but internally like i think americans also feel like this is sort of the beginning of the end and we're sort of sliding right if you look at um sort of these polls that are being done in the US sentiment right now about like whether the country's on the right track, whether it's doing well, it's like they're at historical lows. Yeah. Like the latest one is saying that like basically, I mean, it depends on which poll you look at, but basically anywhere between two thirds to three quarters of the American population is basically, um, is under the the uh, pretense or the, the idea that we're definitely headed in the wrong direction and the sort of our best days are behind us, right? So it's like record level no. pessimism. And then also you have to sort of like think about this, like this is like right on the back. This is like months after the U.S. just withdrew from Afghanistan, yeah, which for the most part, uh, public opinion in America thinks, seems to think that was like very, very poorly done, it was right? A, it was a disaster. It was, well, yeah. like, you could look at the results. I mean, I, I, I was digging into this yesterday and well, the most interesting was Iraq was like the official 2020 was like, the, like when they, they pulled out all the troops, I think. And surprisingly, Iraq has a fledgling democracy still. There, there's still ISIS attacks in the north, but they've like done their like their first parliamentary election, which is very interesting. But I get Afghanistan's a complete opposite mess where the Taliban has full control. They just re reversed everything. Uh, they just separated women from men in universities. Uh, no more media allowed, right? So very disastrous effects. So um, 
yeah, I, I don't know. That's just maybe a little tidbit there. Another question, which, which I really want to find out um, about this conflict or is, the, is the consequences, right? Um, so, so of course, I mean, none of us likes war. None of us wants this to happen. And, uh, yeah. and it has happened. We all wanted to, 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 to end I mean, yes. quickly, ideally through peaceful means. Um, and, 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 and of course, I mean, all this ammunition that's been sent to Ukraine, that does it actually help it end quickly or does it aggregate uh, the, the, the situation? We, we don't know because, I mean, this is a battlefield. I mean, information is chaos. So, so, yeah. so we don't know. But, but I, think, uh, I think we should probably think about some of the long-term consequences. I mean, like almost, is, is it for the first time? But uh, at least the first time hearing it, like, you know, uh, banks from major countries being excluded, excluded from SWIFT. So, so, so that, yeah. th that's something that, um, that I, th I think, I think people around me are saying that, okay, it's, it's very hard for the West to put, to pull it together, but it has happened. So, um, so that prob that will probably, uh, accelerate, um, China's deployment of its, its own settlement system. I mean, it's already there. Not, not many people is using it. Not many people are using it, yeah. but uh, they, they are probably going to accelerate oh. that. I mean, feeling a sense of insecurity. Um, and. And the second is something that um, that that I'm, I'm still trying to understand. Uh, I don't have answer yet. Is that how would how would that impact um, the tech companies in other parts of the world in, in Southeast Asia? Because this obviously would uh, would impact. I mean, how the money is flowing and um, short term, medium term, maybe long term. But we don't know. I mean, for instance, I mean here you have quite a bit of companies which are funded by Russian capital. That's, oh, interesting. No, that's actually true. That's you know, yeah. I actually hadn't thought about that, but that's true. A lot of a lot of times, especially early two thousand eleven, I met quite a lot of Russian investors who were mm. looking to invest. That was very early days. <laughs> that was early so, days. <laughs> very early days. Right? I remember those guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've been thinking about the same thing actually, John Gon. And so I think my immediate conclusions, sort of like I can take away now, is so obviously in the U.S. they've been having some long or sort of these like we've been having supply chain issues for a long time now ever since COVID started right for the last like 18 to 24 months and i think what's happening now is going to only exaggerate those problems right so in terms of what i mean by that so it, it's two it's twofold on on one hand right i think the dominant concern economically in the u.s right now is what's happening with inflation and what's happening with the u.s economy and inflation is driven by two things inflation is driven by one the amount of liquidity amount of capital in the market and it's also driven by supply chains right so this will only have a negative effect for inflation right so you know oil gases or sorry oil prices are already going up I didn't know this, but actually Russia accounts for 7% of the natural gas that the U.S. Uh, uses because they banned fracking. Yeah, yeah imports actually yeah. banned fracking a couple years ago, right? Uh, also, obviously, Ukraine and Russia together, they're, they're actually pretty big agricultural um, producers. They produce 19% of global corn. Uh, Ukraine specifically is a pretty big source of copper and platinum and other materials that are used for uh, microprocessors and batteries. So, so there's definitely going to be like impacts um, in terms of inflation, right? And so then the question becomes, okay, so we're going to have further inflation in the U.S. Therefore, what is the Federal Reserve going to do? So I think the common narrative that we were talking about uh, last couple of months is that the Fed is, has been raising interest rates to, to combat 
inflation, right? But then it's also not common for a central bank to raise interest rates during a, um, a, a conflict, right? So I think, yeah. but, but overall, I, I think this is going to have uh, further exaggerating effects in terms of overall liquidity in the market. You already see it in the market, right? This is definitely having an impact on the equities market. And as we say, you know, the private markets follow the public market. So anything that happens in the public markets will eventually ripple down into the private market. Eventually. So it might take uh, two to three months or sometimes longer, Maybe longer to, yeah. to, to do it, right? But I think fundamentally this will, um, it doesn't change, I think, our original analysis of what companies or how companies should behave in sense of like at some point liquidity will dry up and people should start raising capital now if they still can and sort of settle in for potentially uh like a winter season coming up well doesn't that also depend the nature of u.s involvement or you're saying that the macroeconomic effects will ripple no matter what and like, it doesn't matter it's, I mean, it's it, still it's, interrelated right now like it will, it will yeah. ripple through no matter what yeah but this, what tied to what U.S. consumption is suppressed because, like, I mean, if there if the U.S. is not involved directly, you know, why why does raising rates how, like how does that what's the interconnection then between raising rates and it being disastrous then with the well, ripple effects from the war? Well, think about it, right? Like, basically, the price like if you're in the U.S. right now, like everything's going to go up in price, right? Your gas is going to go up yeah. in price. Your yeah, bills gas, are going to go yes. up in price. Your food bills will probably go up in price, right? And then, like, the supply chain issues, right? So let's back up even more. Like, you know, uh, energy is an input. It's like one of the largest input costs in the manufacturing production of everything, right? Everything that's created, yeah. you need oil and gas, right? That's true. And so Russia is a huge producer and exporter. They're a huge net exporter of oil and gas. So basically, the costs and price of everything are going to go up even more in the U.S., right? We were talking like 7% yeah. inflation last time. Now, you know, who knows what's going to be? It could be 8 It could be 10%, right? Yeah. So when those prices go up, sentiment uh, goes down, right? Consumer sentiment goes down. That will have an impact on global earnings or the company's earnings, right? And then that's what I'm saying. Those public market yeah. uh, ripple effects will eventually go through into the private markets. It's just a question of like, when? Yeah. So you, so then I guess if you tie it back to what Jangan's saying, like how do we get squeezed down to Southeast Asia? Valuations compress more. Uh, it's harder to raise money, more sensible valuations, I'm guessing. I, I, I think it's a possible scenarios, but it is war, right? You don't know how how it would end. You don't yeah, even sure. know what will happen yeah. tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. So, so, so one thing that I've been discussing with a few friends is is uh, is what's the consequence on China, right? I mean, on the one hand, um, the, there, there's this hypothesis that the China's biggest fear is uh, is the U.S. trying to pull Russia towards its own orbit. Then, if that happens, China will be completely surrounded. Well, but and from I, a media perspective, that's what's happening, right? Like you see that, the protests in Moscow and this kind of stuff, right? So the world so, reaction. So basically, the current scenario is playing to the to the favor of Xi uh, from a, a geopolitical point of view because um, because Putin's obviously alienated by the West and um, yeah. Uh, but, but 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 the question is that if this war draws on, if it causes instability of, of the regime in Russia, uh, nobody knows what will happen. So so I would say that uh, I mean we, we, we can predict a few few scenarios, and if those scenarios do happen, what are the consequences? But exactly what kind of scenario will happen, um, it's probably yeah, going to be yeah, fluid for a while. Point. 
Mm. So then, I th you know, I think lots of times ideology is used as an excuse to maintain power. But in this case, it really sounds like it's a true means to defend a way of life because it's more existential, like you said, for Western Europe. For Russia, it's very clear, like, like if you are Putin himself, you could see the ration from his side, like my way of life and my power and all my success I've derived from needs to be defended. And if that affects mm -hmm. also China, China has a dog in the game to make sure Putin doesn't fall either. So in a sense, like, you know, if we're going by ideology in a way of life, it just seems like this would have to escalate on a much bigger scale if, if everyone's putting all their cards in, right? Like everyone wants to maintain their status quo. But if that, if, you know, the balance changes one or the other, it's really, you know, existential and life-learning for, for those, you know, either side's way of life, right? So it's, it's I, I think ideology actually does really matter here. You know, we tend to dismiss it or we, we you know, when we're young kids learning about history and, you know, the reasons for, you know, spreading, stopping the spread of communism from an American history perspective, we kind of think that's ridiculous because so many people died and we say it's a mistake. But does ideology matter, you guys think here? I think ideology matters less than uh, geopolitics. Yeah. So you're saying it's an excuse then? So yeah, then... I mean, I mean, she, she, she's, she is, uh, I mean, more of a, more, more of a Chinese dictator rather than a communist dictator. Put it that way. Yeah, but I mean, like, <laughs> but like, it does matter if you had to say if you were Ukrainian. Like, come on, you're going to tell me the ideology doesn't matter. Your whole life is changing. You're living under a different regime now, or like if someone invades your country, right? So, so doesn't it matter? I, I, I think it's still a matter of geopolitics. I mean, if you look at, I mean, if you look at both Russia, Russia and Ukraine in the 1990s after the Soviet Union, I mean, both wanted to join the Western order. And uh, Boris mm. Hitchin, Yeltsin want, wants to be accepted by the West. And uh, I think, what, what was the guy's name? Leonid Kuzma, the, the Ukrainian leader, yeah. wanted, to join, yeah. wanted to join the Western order as well. And obviously, for small, smaller countries, much easy, easier to be accepted. But for a big country as mm. Russia, I mean, when... when where it carries its weight into the Western orbit, and it will not be accepted. I mean, same for the same reason that the European Union doesn't want to accept Turkey. I think consequentially that's true, right? Like you cannot. If that's how the powers over your lives be, and you're under that system, then you're stuck. But you know, you could ask yourself this question: like, would you rather live under Russia, China, or America? You know, or some other country, right? So it. So and then like, we have the privilege to kind of choose at this point in time because we're in the yep. other sphere. But yeah. other people really don't, so I don't know. Yep. So complicated. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I don't know. Final question of this: Who do you think are the winners and losers of this? I mean, or roughly speaking, I mean, like I know you said, we can't really predict anything; it's too unpredictable. But what are potential people benefiting? Because one narrative I hear that China does benefit from this because the decline of two two great powers, right? And they they just need to sit and wait for them to dog it out. Yeah. Um, the other, I don't, I don't know. What do you guys think? Who who wins and who loses here? Well, I mean, I think in, since we're talking about China, I think this is actually a really interesting case study, for lack of better words, for China. And like, I think this, like, how the West reacts right now uh, to an invasion of a country by like a foreign aggressor, or whatever, is actually a yeah. good uh, learning experience. And they can look at this as a template for how they want to deal with Taiwan going forward. Correct. Right. Like, so. I mean, I agree. I think one of the big, big problems here is that um, you know the the Russians did almost no PR when it came before they invaded, and so like one of the big yeah. learning points here is that you know you need to at least have some trumped up justification. Otherwise, like the Correct. West will universally yeah. condemn you, and you know, China very well, much cares about that. 
right? So was, but, was, was Putin trolling us then when he said he wants to denazify or was he actually trying to like seriously thought it would help appeal to the West or what? No, I mean, I, I, I think he's pretty, the guy's pretty savvy, right? I think he's just, yeah, it's, yeah. it's Trump's a bullshit. Excuse. So he was serious then. He, so yeah. that means he does feel that an organized Nazi militia in Ukraine does threaten Russia. No, 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 no. I, I think, I think he was, I think that's just, just trumped up BS. Oh, okay. Right? Okay. It's like, it's like, yeah. it's like the same, it's the same thing that we talked about this, right? There's some like Russian minister, like I think their foreign minister basically said that we're invading Ukraine to uh, deal with their weapons of mass destruction, which is like a direct jab at the yeah. U.S. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's a straight up jab. Um, that's true. Yeah. I think actually the biggest loser this is probably going to be Russia. I don't really see them coming mm. out of this, Interesting. you know, with a lot of, uh, I, I don't see this. There's not many scenarios where I think they would come out of this positively, right? Like either they back down Unless, uh, in Ukraine correct. and they, they lose face, right? Putin will definitely lose face and, and prestige. Uh, or if they um, become more aggressive, and start to uh, deploy more uh, aggressive tactics, you know, the condemnations are going to increase and the sanctions uh, that are being imposed on them already are going to increase as well. So actually, let me let me rephrase that. I think the losers here are definitely going to be the Russian people. No matter what happens, mm. this yeah. is bad for the yeah, Russian yeah, yeah, for yeah. the Russian people, right? I mean, already it's terrible. Like the ruble dropped like 25% yesterday yeah. in one day alone right and there's like there's bank I, runs happening yeah i have friends that live in russia I've, there's stories of people going in like panic buying like gucci bags and stuff as a store of value <laughs> no we laugh about it but oh my God. serious it's not a joke it's, it's well like, yeah actually no you're right like it, that's yeah. it's yeah that's kind of scary that's yeah. really scary yeah so i mean the loser in this definitely russian people like there's yeah. I, I think there's no doubt about that jangan who do you think winners losers possibilities I, I think Singapore is probably going to be a winner, uh, although they will never, uh, they will n never uh, admit that. So, so whatever something happens, I mean, capital fly to Singapore. And, that's uh, true. That's, that's quite true, though. Uh, and also, and also, I think it's also, um, I think Prime Minister of Singapore said, uh, was that yesterday or the, the day before yesterday? And uh, what happened in Ukraine shows the importance to to have your own. Um, your own defense for a small country. So, so this is something that, that the government had invested in a lot since, since the, since the, since the beginning of the of the republic. And yeah. uh, you probably know that. I mean, you probably don't know that. But, um, but I think when when I first came to Singapore, I, I read some some something about geography. And uh, at that time, that was 20, uh, 2001. So 26 of the land in Singapore is owned by the Ministry of Defense. So they took defense very, very seriously. Wow. Yeah. 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 Well, they learned from World War II, right? The Japanese rolled up in bicycles and took over. Guns were pointed yeah. the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also all the confrontation that was happening with Singapore gained independence. Um, I, I think it's a reminder that the, that the government can come out and tell its people that, okay, we do all these things that, that, that you now resent because your kids have to go to the army. But uh, we do yeah. that for a reason. Um, I think another thing which uh, which the government was probably um, I'm not sure whether they're going to do that, but um, but but another important fact that I think Singapore did right is racial harmony, right? I mean, so it's, it's Chinese majority, but uh, but they retain English as the official language, and they they ensure that um, Tamil as well, yeah, Malay. yeah, those, those are all four four national languages. 
No, four official languages and uh, one national language, which is the Malay. Well, but they but they also did stamp out all of the dialects, which I guess, which you could argue, same as Indonesia, you need to unify the country, I guess. Yep, like yep, the yep. Chinese Cultural Revolution. So. But, but, because because if you look at what happened in Ukraine and uh, I think I, I think the native Russian speakers are not happy at all, all, all the all the actions by the central government in Kiev to try to yeah. to oppress the, the the Russian language and um, and it's a fact that uh, that uh, there's a significant Russian Russian speaking population there and you can't deny that fact and um, and if you if you keep sort of stoking up the the nationalist sentiment about the, the sort of Ukrainian identity some people are going to be left unhappy. And uh, you can't drive these people away. So, 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 no. so, so, whether Russia invests or, or not, you, you you are going to have this tension in your country for the long term if you pursue this policy. That's okay. Yeah. All right, guys. Let's let's jump to the next topic. Um, it's it's too bad uh, our friend Master G is not here. Alibaba talked about spinning off Lazada, right? So they were about to raise a billion for a Lazada IPO, but it seems they had to pause it because they weren't getting the valuation they're looking for. Um, so it seems that they have to go back to the drawing board, double down, and they want to quintuple their GMB to $100 billion. Um, so I don't know. What, what do you guys think this signals, uh, you know, from, from a perspective from Alibaba? Uh, do they have the balance sheet to support this? Are they going to try to compete without raising the money? Why were they trying to do this in the first place? Is it their trouble? They can't seem to figure out Southeast Asia? Or what do you guys see from your perspective? And also... Uh, to note, this was like after Alibaba missed revenue estimates for two straight quarters too. So there's a lot of interesting headwinds for for Alibaba, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't know. So my yeah, it is. I agree with you. It's a shame that Andrew isn't here because he has the, he's one of the most insight. But I mean, if you think about it, right? There's there's typically like some fairly well established reasons for why a company would spin off a subsidiary or or a division. Right. And so they're there. Yeah. Let's just go through them. Right. So there, there's like number one, okay. uh, it's a management issue. Right. The parent company realizes that uh, it, they might be better suited to oversee uh, some of their lines of business. But then maybe this is one business that doesn't quite match their expertise. Yeah. Right. So then they, they spin yeah. it off. So then the top management can better focus on their core business and they can bring in like a new, more suitable management team for yeah. the uh the subsidiary whatever gets spun off right so that's that's one yeah. that's one reason uh another reason is you know you the the main business and the subsidiary business are on different growth trajectories right and maybe there's uh a subsidization that's being i mean we know that there's subsidization happening from yeah, one business to another that's everyone knows this yeah. right uh but yeah maybe like overall like the strategies of the core business and then the subsidiary business are now diverging and they'd be better suited for them to go their separate ways right uh another reason which i don't think is like relevant in this case is typically when the subsidiary gets spun off you get better coverage or more accurate coverage from the securities analysts because there's less things to dig through and it's more transparent mm. right but i don't think yeah. that there's that, that that's the case here and yeah, then the final yeah, yeah I, I don't think that they don't i don't think Alibaba cares um and then the final reason and i think this is probably the most reasonable one is it just it they think it makes sense financially like it unlocks shareholder value right like yeah you know there's yeah. a lot there's a lot of research that's done and a lot of you know case studies that basically whenever a company gets spun off eventually like within like 18 24 months the two entities 
uh, are like combined 24%. Both, yeah. yeah, they're both doing better from an, uh, a capitalization point of view than the original business, right? So I think they just thought this was an op opportunity to to capture some shareholder value is my guess, right? I think I think if you were to ask me the, the two most likely reasons is one, um, they think that they don't want to subsidize this anymore. And two, they can probably make some, some you know, capital gains doing this. Mm. Before I comment, Jangan, what do you think? Um, I think I agree with the with the potential reasons that, that they mentioned, and and also I think from for uh, additional point I would I would like to raise is that uh, I mean from organization point of view, I I think there's lots of lots of value that uh, that uh, Lazada needs to unlock. Mm. So I I know lots of people in Lazada. And especially the batch of, uh, I think, the Chinese operatives that they sent in, in 2018, lots of them very, very strong mm. individually. Yeah. And um, some of the best from uh, China, right? They, they, they took some of the best from Taobao and Timo to, to, to basically help Lazada. So uh, the, the reason why I think uh, I think Lazada is in a situation today, which is, I mean, overtaken by Shopee, of course, long term is still hard to say, right? Um, yeah. It's, it's it's largely organizational, so so we have so many so many people who are individually strong, and are you able to sort of um, sort of have a structure to to get them to work all towards one direction? Because because I mean, if you look at uh, at least from outside, what you see the strategy of Lazada sort of swings, and sometimes it's um, it's, it's mm. focusing brand doing the right thing, and and, yeah. and 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 sometimes it's trying to basically catch up with Shopee doing free shipping and stuff. So so. So, so whenever you have this swing, so sort of people's attention is actually wasted, and uh, I, I think the same here, same thing happened with um, with Ant Group's uh, initiative in Southeast Southeast Asia as well. So, um, so so if you spin it off and uh, make it clear that who is actually leading it and make make other shareholders to come and hold the leadership accountable, it's probably a good thing. I'm, I'm trying to think out loud here and. Mm. Does that mean this kind of fits into this narrative of Chinese expansion struggling beyond their own borders? Because that was a very big narrative for the past 10 years. Um, I mean, I think Tencent struggled for a long time, though I think their main product now, Jukes, apparently has a lot of market share. I don't know how true that is. And I mean, given the nature of how price elastic a lot of Southeast Asia is, the model tends to work. But in general, I don't know any other big, successful, massive exports from China in the Southeast Asia region. So do you think this is fit in this narrative where they just the Chinese management couldn't figure it out? It's just that their their method doesn't export well or this I is think, not really the case? I, I, sorry, David, you want to go first? Uh, no, no, you, you, go, you go first, Shankan. You go, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Because I, because I just wrote a book about it, and uh, oh yeah, so, then you go. Oh, yeah. that's right, you yeah. did write a book. Yeah. You didn't tell us about your book. Yeah, tell us about it. Yeah. Can we have like, can yeah, we do like I a mean, book review next time? We should do a book review. Yeah, we'll do, do a book, book review, review next time. Yes, um, I need to, I need to deliver like additional, I think twenty thousand words to the publisher by by mid of this month because um, because that's it. You write too this much like an investor. You write too much like an investor. Very concise and. <laughs> Uh, but we, uh, but we want more stories. Okay. Yeah. More fluff. But anyway, okay. so so the book is about Chinese companies outside China, and uh, we look at I mean the, the, the tech giants, the, the startups, and uh, and and the, the, the basically other other companies in the tech sector which which are expanding outside China, and uh, and, and 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 to be honest, um, up until now we see more problems than successes. Um, the problems are usually about leadership, about organization, about people. 
less so about the product because I think products more downstream and these guys typically have a very good tech and product capabilities and good experience. Um, the the challenge is that uh, the challenge is that um, when you have a large home market which consumes most of the leaders' attention and mental space, and how do you allocate resources uh, adequately to a subsidiary in a foreign market where you don't have the full information, or you have full information you don't know how to make a judgment because you are not physically there. Um, yeah. So 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 I do think that's not uniquely a problem with Chinese companies. I think that's a problem with. Uh, Many large companies with large large home market trying to expand. I mean, if you look at uh, in the early days, some of the Japanese internet companies trying to expand in Southeast Asia didn't really succeed. And Gojek tries to yeah. expand out of Indonesia doesn't really get anywhere. So, so, yeah, so, so I think this 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 problem is is something to do with the leadership, something to do with the organization, something to do with how resources are allocated, and also what kind of people you use, right? I mean. If a Chinese company decides to, so, so for instance, Lazada, um, I mean, how Alibaba convinced those people to come to Lazada is by, it's not by saying that, hey, hey, um, you are going to own the price of Malaysia. Nobody cares about Malaysia from China. It's, it's too small a market. A category of more is, is larger than the, than the whole market of Malaysia. So what they care about is that, hey, Alibaba is going to double its size by, serve, by serving 2 billion people. Now we have like, I don't know, 700 million, 800 million in China. Yeah, and uh, we, we can serve two billion people when you crack international markets, and you guys are the commandos. And once you figure this out, and once our international markets grow, you guys are at the at the forefront. I mean, this is what brought those people in, in in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So, well, which is interesting. When I was reading the article, the Bloomberg article you sent, right? I, I was quite surprised to hear Daraz was also still around, which was the other rocket venture that. Alibaba bought, right? So it was, the, and then they were saying that, you know, ex, oh. uh, from growth from cloud, growth from external businesses like Lazada, Daraz, there was one more company from Turkey. Trilio. Trilio. Uh, that, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, that's going to be the main engines of growth going forward. So it does seem that they have to figure out the, the ex, international expansion piece, which again is tied to what you're talking about. And I guess if anyone's very interested about these topics, I would recommend reading uh, Frank Sleuth's book, The CEO of Snowflake. So th yeah. essentially, that's what he had to do when when he joined Snowflake. It was already quite successful, but he somehow managed to grow to a two hundred billion dollar monster. And I think there's a lot of lessons along those themes that might be interesting to to check out as well. Yeah, okay, the book is out in July. <laughs> oh, that's that's what that's what your book is dropping, Jiangan. Okay. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right though. Yeah, I I mean I I also had some firsthand experience with this. You know, working as like the leader of a subsidiary division of a company whose parent was uh, American, right? I think it's a question of like incentives and organizational incentives, right? So like one of the common things that I always had, one of the conflicts I always had with the US when I was working Living Social is because we were working off like a centralized tech platform, right? So the feature set and a lot of the things that you created from like a product and tech point of view were very much optimized for the American market. The American and we market, always yeah. had to find some way to either jury, like, literally, jury rig it. Yeah. We literally had to jury rig this thing to make it suit our needs. And it was always an incredibly inelegant solution, right? So that's, yeah. and that's just a question of incentives, right? Like, you know, as a leader of a large organization, obviously I would deploy resources where the highest ROI is. So if you have a market that's yeah, like correct. 50 times the size that's of- true. Malaysia, then why would you deploy, you know, features yeah, for the Malaysian market? And also, I think, I guess one more question for Jiang Gan, right? Like in your, in your book, in your work, like 
I'm starting to like sort of think that the Chinese tech companies do a really good job as investors in in foreign tech companies. I'm I'm actually looking at Tencent as a great case study of this. I think Tencent has made some like really savvy investments I mean, in the gaming space. Yeah, uh, you know, like yeah. Blizzard, Riot, they're they're, yeah. they're, they're huge, yeah. right? Um, they show up everywhere. They show up everywhere. But yeah, like from like an operational point of view, I remember like a couple of years ago when they tried to expand WeChat globally and they spent like $200 million <laughs> yeah. hiring Ronaldo as a spokesperson and it literally got them nowhere. So I, I guess my question is like, do you think this is like sort of like a, an acceptance among the Chinese uh, tech ecosystem that maybe they're better functioning or they're better as capital allocators than they are as uh, operators when it comes to international tech companies? Like, what do you think? I, I think that's fairly specific about Tencent because they do the same thing in China. Mm. They allocate capital. They invest in people, uh, in companies, in, in, in ecosystem. I mean, mm. uh, before before they dished out uh, JD JD shares as dividends to to Tencent shareholders last year, and Tencent <laughs> was 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 the biggest shareholder of, uh, of of JD. Yeah, and I think the biggest shareholder of Pinduoduo and. Uh, the biggest or the biggest shareholder, the biggest institutional shareholder or corporate shareholder of um, of Meituan, the biggest mm-hmm. shareholder of Baker, the biggest shareholder of Futu. So, so but it has WeChat, right? I mean, so so yeah. I think initially many companies, Tencent, Baidu, Alibaba, all had this debate. So there are many things we could do based on the customer uh, traffic mm-hmm. and data we have. And the question is that what do we do ourselves? What do we do? What, what what do we just invest in and get other people to to to, to leverage this we can, we can build this better than they us mm. and um and and of course i mean the, the companies take two took different routes i mean baidu took the route that they wanted to do everything themselves i mean mm-hmm. look at where they are now yeah um, and and and, and mm-hmm. it, yeah so 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 tencent tencent um i think had some serious uh soul searching and reflection i think back around 2011 or 2010 can't remember exactly which year mm-hmm. so 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 the conclusion is that they wanted to be an enabler if they wanted to do do everything mm-hmm. themselves i mean it's very hard for them to execute well at every dimension and yeah. you will mm-hmm. you will alienate them, themselves uh, against the people who would, who would otherwise be working with them so yeah. so alibaba took a That's different smart. approach alibaba is is investing in lots of companies but they demand lots of control over these investees. I mean, yeah. maybe not intentional, but this is how how the whole system sort of sort of eventually evolved to be this way, and that that is happening to Lazada. No, sure. So yeah, go ahead. So do you think this is very intentional part of the strategy that's part of the long term ecosystem building, or they've realized they have to compete in a different way outside in the Southeast Asia region or other emerging regions as well? Like, is the playbook changing, or they're still following the playbook? Think- do you think? I think the playbook is always changing. So, 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 uh, bear in mind they took the investment approach in India. Uh, they invested in Paytm big time, and uh, yeah. I, I think they invested in Snapdeal. Didn't quite work out. So, so, mm-hmm. so, so, all these episodes sort of shaped the leadership's thinking about yeah. and and their assessment of about the market. Um, but, yeah. but, 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 but I think for the large, complicated foreign markets, I mean, these leaders are not in the markets themselves. So it's very hard for them to to have an updated and an accurate assessment. Is, do you think they're, I mean, given that the fact they've been missing sales um, estimates and they're not growing to people's expectations, do you think this is a, a, a problem going forward and they need to kind of, I don't know, re-strategize and, I don't know, I don't know, fix the, the leaky think, boat or, I think, or I this, think. it's not really a problem? They're still well capitalized, can make it happen. 
I think they are, they are, they are still a very profitable company. Yeah, that way. Yeah. So, um, but the, but the question here is that um, um, when when a company is seemingly not going towards the right direction, when the growth is saturated, when 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 the employees the stock options uh, are not really yeah. growing in value, so what does that do to the morale and what does that do mm. to the to Tell the retention? To the best people you have because when things yeah. are growing and people are saying oh i can put up with politics i can put up with this i can put up with yeah you know, correct whatever yeah. but mm. when things are yeah. not growing um so 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 the incentives will probably be very different i i do think that's, that's what's true. happening with shopee as well nowadays when, when the share price was going down so so i mean it surely has a dent on people's morale and uh, and yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it takes strong leadership to navigate through these difficult periods yeah yeah so just to follow your thought you said you know that's happening with Shopee now, right? And we you said you shared an article yesterday, or you shared the the, the link to Shopee France that they had entered the market. Mm. Um, I had spoken to a lot of my friends who are also ex Rocket and stuff. They didn't. I mean, I think there was some buzz that they knew, but like my friend didn't even know Shopee existed in France. But apparently, they're already <laughs> leaving France by March. And I mean, we're talking. He's a very savvy tech founder. He helped also build out a lot of ventures in Southeast Asia, but he moved to France. But uh, but he didn't even know Shopee was there, and he didn't. He didn't. He he asked, "Oh, is that the Singaporean company?" He didn't really know what it was. <laughs> so, um, I don't know what happened with Shopee France. Then, do you have any insights, Jangan? Or no? uh, I I don't know what exactly happened, but uh, but I have a few pointers. So first, it entered France, I think, on the nineteenth nineteenth of of uh, October um, last year. Yeah. And uh, the landscape of e-commerce in France is basically um, a number of like uh, traditional retailers going online. And uh, many you used secondhand marketplaces. I mean, that says a lot about people's consumption power. Um, and uh, and also Amazon. But Amazon has been facing labor issues in France. Like you know, they, they had to constantly like shut and reopen their their fulfillment centers because of labor issues. But so, I, so, so it's uh, I, I heard, yeah. Go ahead. No, I just heard that uh, from from when I was asking my friend about Shopee in France. He was saying. Um, there is a lot of these kind of vertical commerce because it's a very mature market. But he says, mm -hmm. by by and far, he feels because he believes that Amazon is still the king, right? So, do you, do you think it was hard for Shopee to displace a mature market that people don't need this kind of cheap <clears throat> goods model? Or what what do you think? From it's just too complicated. By the way, by the way, I think uh, I think France is also one of the best markets of AliExpress. So so that's probably what Shopee was oh, really? imme immediately trying to. To, to, to this space. I mean, if you look at three markets, I mean, Poland, France, and, uh, and Spain, they were good markets for AliExpress. Yeah. Brazil, Brazil was a good market for AliExpress. So, so obviously, I mean, Shopee's sourcing team in China um, might not, yeah. I mean, might not have as as many sort of connections as Alibaba would have, but uh, they're definitely more motivated than AliExpress people. So, for sure. um, so, so yeah, so, 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 so that, that, that I think was the entry point. The question is that, um, the question is that uh, they have, they have obviously tried um, acquisition um, in a sort of way that they have been doing other markets in France. They probably have concluded that um, that the market is not as attractive um, mm. compared to other markets like Spain, like uh, uh, like yeah. Poland. So so um, so I checked. I think they stopped investing in marketing in France um, yeah. in um, end of last year. That's when their their rankings start, started to drop, uh, but. Yeah. Uh, but but in Spain and Poland they they were still pumping in money. I mean it's 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 it's, it's still I mean top of top yeah. of the chart in terms of uh, uh, app rankings and stuff. So yeah, 
It feels very similar to Rocket Internet Playbook. We, we saw this when initially Rocket enters, they plow a ton of money everywhere, but you see very fast within six months, which company, which countries survive and which don't in terms of business models. Like, I don't know if you remember, like um, what was Office Fab or a bunch of other ones that kind of died early days, right? So mm -hmm. I, I think mm -hmm. it feels very similar think, where you test the market and your metrics don't hit the playbook, you shut down very fast. I think uh, I think it doesn't mean that they will not come back to this market later, uh, but it means that mm -hmm. at this particular point of time, uh, I mean, let's assume that it, let's assume this is a cyber, uh, cyber um, sub discussion for the same amount of investment they do, they can they can get much more much more traction uh, or much more return in Somewhere other markets. Else. Yeah, hmm. because they count the they count the total orders and total GMV. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any comments, Steve? I don't know. I feel like these things go. I feel like it's like a pattern to these sorts of expansion strategies, right? So like you have like these companies that that do well in their home regions to grow, and then at a certain point they have all this excess capital and then they have these growth metrics that they need to hit. So they start looking around into saying like, what are the ancillary businesses, either verticals or geographies yeah. that we can expand into and start doing like this, um, like this prey and spray strategy almost, right? Where they deploy yeah. on a mass scale and then eventually it, they'll, they'll settle into like where the return on invested capital is the yeah. highest. And I think yeah. what happens a lot is the, there's a lot of, it's going to be a lot of like, collateral damage in terms of like you know I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah you know people are going to get hired they're going to get fired really quickly yeah um and we i mean we've seen this play out with so many companies and so many times in the past yeah and that's why like i think i was originally a little bit um bearish on their mass expansion strategy because it just seemed like they were kind of just deploying everywhere that they think that they could have and seeing like what yeah. came back which i think from like a corporate strategy point of view, you know, like, because it's always a function of time and money, right? So yeah. if you're doing a strategy like that, it's essentially, to me, that says, I'm willing to spend a lot of money to sort of like, uh, save myself time in terms of like doing the research and being like really thoughtful and long term in in my entry strategy and my expansion strategy. So I think that's just sort of what we're doing now. I mean, so, I think so let, me, sorry, let me let me let me expand. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, one last thing. So let me expand on that. So I do think that this is probably just the beginning. I think that there will be more pullbacks from them this year in the markets where yeah. they don't see the return on invested capital that they yeah. would in their stronger markets. So I, I think we should expect more of this. I mean, I, I I think it's an interesting point that you bring up is that honestly. If you look at the strategies of Amazon and you look at the strategies of Shopee, like Shopee is going the top-down approach where it's like, you know, they're just go very big and then they kind of optimize where Amazon was kind of going bottom up. They take their time and then they kind of build it up with the value that they know about. But it converges to the same thing. You need to grow your top line as big as possible. And then you only optimize because, you know, like 1% of 1 billion is more meaningful than 1% of 1 million, right? So it's they're both just maximizing the top line eventually, but with very different strategies, but it's converging to the same thing. I guess the other thing is then, what do you guys, like, how do you think about the Alibaba target of 100 billion GMV, which is quintupling, right? How could you meaningfully grow GMV without horizontally expanding to other countries in the same regions that they already are? Or, or do they have to follow another strategy? Like, because I think we're all, we all have kind of e-commerce background. So we know like SKU expansion, getting more deeper in SKUs, more categories, right? But then how do you quintuple 
in these, you know, their existing markets for, for Alibaba? How do you think they meaningfully grow the company, essentially? I, th I think the... I think a number of things, right? I mean, first, you tap into the sectors that uh, that has uh, has been as that is still largely offline, say groceries. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's a sector that every player in China tries to get into. That I mean, Alibaba has been buying and investing in supermarkets. So, so, so that's something which which will allow them to 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 to, to grow the GME to a certain extent. Um, but um, but but again, so this comes down to execution, right? Once the organization becomes complicated, I mean, how do you execute each part really well? Uh, by yourself and what kind of execu executives you, you hire to put into these places. I mean, look at things on, on the ground. Alibaba is not as competitive as Meituan uh, in many sectors that were there that are in direct conflict. So, so are they able to yeah. execute that that well? And um, and also, also when, when organization becomes complicated, when things don't get get executed well, um, who takes the blame? So, so you will see that um, that from the leadership point of view, they they, they probably think that. Um, First, before they, they, they launch any new, new new initiative, I mean, if this fails, who would take the blame? Yeah. I, I I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you you know they assigned this ex uh, ex top and team or president to be to be heading in international businesses, and that guy was demoted yeah. because uh, because he had some um, some scandal. I mean, uh, <laughs> extramarital affairs and stuff. <laughs> so, so, so I do think that if you put him in charge of uh, of global markets, I mean, if it if it works out well and um, and it's good for the group, right? It's good, for, and because he did the things which nobody thinks is possible, and even if he, if he fails, it's it's still okay. Even this guy was very capable. Uh, we can't really use it for the main business in China, and he still can't pull this off. That 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 that. Then we can basically write a conclusion that overseas markets are bad. And that's just my simple. Dave, how view. do you think? Yeah. How, how do you think they can meaningfully grow GMV in a material way that's just not pushing top line in this kind of loose manner we described? But this is the problem, right? Because as you say, pushing GMV for the sake of, of pushing GMV is just that, right? It is just pushing yeah. top. It's just I mean, like we all know this, right? Like e-commerce. It's the Amazon flywheel. It comes down to three components. It's price selection and, and convenience, yeah. right? And well, I'll execution the, too, but yeah. But the execution is, is oh, the implementation just... of these three things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's price selection convenience. That's what drives GMV yeah. growth and e-commerce growth. So, I mean, if we're talking about just driving GMV, I mean, shit, if I gave away like a million cell phones, no, you, get I've, I've, you can get it, but then what's the point, right? It, does that, well, the question, does, the question is retention, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's a question of retention. So, but the, and we've been well, through the this, cycle so many yeah. times. So, I think like them saying they just yeah. want to drive pure GMV growth to me strikes me as a bit odd because I feel like we're kind of past that phase in e-commerce yeah. in Southeast Asia, right? Like, if they yeah, had said yeah. something like, "Hey, we want to drive more sellers or more more users, more more whatever," that I think would have been to me a more um, yeah. You know, I, I let me phrase. I think them saying we want to focus on GMV is kind of telling to me that they don't really have a clear strategy or clear yeah. thought process yeah, behind yeah, what yeah. they're doing here. Well, so I, I I've been thinking about this too, and I kind of agree because like I think in almost every category, whether it's right or wrong, Shopee is has more selection than than Lazada. But what I'm thinking is that at this point in time, what matters most, and why I still why I'm very biased, and what I still prefer is that. At the end of the day, the Amazon product is superior, at least for me right, as a consumer. So I think at this point in time, if you have already gotten all the sellers, you've gotten all the categories, and you've got the price and the selection, you have to optimize on the product, which makes the stickiness factor. 
So anytime you're kind of pushing it, then that kind of leads to, you know, longer LTV, you get deeper, you know, uh, then that increases your value over time, I think. So at this point in time, it makes, the, makes this kind of transition, like where you've done this kind of top line strategy, you got the market, you got the market share, but you have to improve the experience vastly. And just then you build from there, kind of like what Amazon has done in America, right? So I, that's kind of how I feel. I mean, I mean, it's very Western kind of thinking, very biased, but I, I do feel like that's what I'd be looking for. I'm, I'm stuck on Shopee and Lazada, but I think long-term, if you keep making my experience better, I'm going to lean towards one or the other, as long as selection is somewhat similar, right? But selection, at the end of the day, it's just be a price war. Like, so whoever takes less margin to kind of win, then who can survive longer, right? So that, that's the way I think about I it. Think, I think if you look at Amazon uh, Flywheel, selection is basically when you have lots of customers and, uh, and, and you can attract lots of sellers, the sellers will offer the selection and selection will yeah. attract more customers. And because yeah, of this, price. you lower the whole cost structure. So. So Correct. I don't see I, I don't see Alibaba and Shopee's um, strategy deviate away from that. I mean, maybe they just add one yeah. elements on top of that to do digital finance, whatever. But at the end of the day, it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's the same logic here: traffic, data, and monetize. Yeah. Okay. The question is that the, the question is that how how do you monetize in, in these emerging markets? I mean, do you do the same way that eventually you you gravitate yeah. towards brand towards advertising, or I don't know. I think it will. I think it will have to be different because where we are economically is not the same as where developed markets are. So I think naturally it will be very end up being a different flavor probably. But I mean principles still hold. Um, yeah. I don't know. Last topic. I mean, do you, do we have time to talk about it? Do you, I mean we could mention SCB investing in Akulaku? Uh, yeah, briefly because uh, because I, I think none of us would know uh, too much about what exactly uh, went behind. Yeah, I don't know much about this one. Uh, yeah, I know but, a little bit about SCB yeah. because I recently did a podcast on EOA talking about the Thai ecosystem. And SCB is a very interesting case, which kind of alludes to other fintech possibilities in a region. So I, I could talk about that, but I don't know much about Akulaku, though. I didn't realize you said the deck. I didn't realize how big they were. It's like such a massive company. I, 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 I didn't send you a I, I, <laughs> I mean, sorry, you sent me a, a news article. You sent me a news okay. article about um, Akulaku and... Yes, I learned a lot about that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, Jangan, I don't know. Why don't you tee off what you know about? So, what what is SCB for people who don't know? What is Akulaku and what's happening? First, SCB stands for Signed Commercial Bank and uh, not Standard Chartered Bank in this context. So, <laughs> yes. So, so, so they are one of the biggest banks. I mean, one of the two biggest banks in Thailand. The other one's Kasikum Bank or OK Bank. So the two have been at the forefront of, uh, of, of, of digital innovation in Thailand, and I would argue in the region as well. So SCB, um, they are particularly aggressive. So what they have done, they launched a food delivery platform called Robinhood. I think no commission, if I well, remember correctly. Yeah. Also, yeah. also to give more context, they are traditional banking under traditional banking license. But at the end of last year, they completely reorganized and restructured to be a holding company to allow them to focus more on digital innovation. So yes. on, under the holding, they have one banking aspect, but they're using this to invest in, uh, you know, other things from like crypto to food delivery to like now you can see they've led the series. Well, they were part of the series for Akulaku, which was massive for them. Right. And I, I think it's very interesting because no, number one, the Thai ecosystem is very CVC driven, right? Corporate venture capital. It's not really this kind of flavor of led by, you know, this, you know, entrepreneurs that are you know, doing individually, but it's. From what I talked to, what I understand from the players in the market is it's very corporate driven. I have a sense this, that the ecosystem in Thailand is, is, is in a way very similar to, to that in, in Japan. I mean, the, the way that the, the, the sort of financial companies are structured, uh, yeah. the way that things are regulated. Um, so, so yeah, so, so it, it is, um, 
and 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 also in terms of uh, in, in terms of the coverage of financial services it, it, it's pretty wide so so it makes it difficult yeah. for 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 new player to come in saying that hey i won't disrupt the, the banking Correct. sector and, and and i suspect um scb and k bank they became especially innovative uh, of course i mean a lot of that is is is, is you have to you have a lot the leadership and uh, and the, the, the support from the top shareholders whatever but 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 on the other hand, um, that a lot of the things that they did happened after after Ant invested in uh, Ascent Money, which which is owned by CP Group. So so basically they were launching wallets, and uh, they, they were trying to uh, to disrupt the digital financial scene. And uh, I think I think that was a wake up call for 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 the two banks in Thailand to start doing a lot of things very aggressive. Um, and, well, and do you know no. that the SCB also recently acquired 51% of the largest crypto exchange in Thailand? Yes, correct. Yeah, yeah. so there, that's why. But like crypto is a massive thing in Thailand. And like most people in entrepreneurship, they're either just doing crypto or they're working for SCBX or something like this, right? So it's a very different ecosystem. Yeah. Um, I mean, to me, the one takeaway is like we had talked about this in a previous episode is that banks probably would need to partner with tech partners. But I think. SCB is kind of flipping on the head where they said that we are restructuring and we're going to do it ourselves. We're going to invest, build, and kind of execute. So it's it. Uh, the question is like, you know, do other will this happen in other countries as well, where banks will try to actually do it themselves, or will they actually end up partnering with the likes of Grab and Shopee instead? So maybe I don't know if this bucks the trend. Maybe they're successful. This bucks the trend. I don't know. I think I think there, there's partnership going on, right? Uh, SCB's main competitor, K Bank. That's true. Um, they, they they have a joint venture with Line called Line BK, which does consumer finance. Uh, I think they, I mean, Grab's uh, wallet wallet in Thailand is essentially white label of K Bank's solution, and uh, yeah. so 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 basically, there's lots of partnership going on. Because at the end of the day, I mean, these banks with large asset base, their cost of capital is lower, and all this. Um, all these large tech players want to get into digital finance. They they, they need yeah. capital, which is low cost. So so I do see there's a there's lots of uh, lots of room for partnership, but uh, but essentially what will happen afterwards it depends on assessment of each individual players, right? I mean, does like Shopee or Grab want to continuously share the customer data to the banks? No. Does the bank want the uh, want yeah. customers to be uh, entry point to be continuously owned by large tech players? I I, I think this this will be kind of like friend frenemy sort of a relationship sure. for long term. That's a good point. Um, mm. so before sorry I cut you off before that maybe you briefly say what is Akulaku then we could hear what Dave thinks. Uh, Akulaku is um, Indonesia based uh, uh, fintech companies uh, with the core team in Shenzhen, China. So 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 they started as um, as remittance player in Hong Kong. Um, helping the the the, the mates send money back uh, back home, and I think in 2015 or 2016 they went to Indonesia and they started doing buy now pay what would now call buy now pay later, but back then back then um, they they were trying to work with uh, I think the uh, the e-commerce platforms, but the volume was quite small, so they launched their own e-commerce. They were selling phones. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, Wait, but and, also, and they, well, the founders are all from Hong Kong or from Chinese. China they mainland Chinese. Yeah. I mean, that's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. 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 But they based it in Hong so, Kong to start. Okay. Uh, they were based in Shenzhen. So. Oh, Shenzhen. Shenzhen. Shenzhen then. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, now you can't cross the border, but, uh, but, but in, in the past you can. Um, I think yeah. they have evolved into, into something fairly big. Uh, they, they own one of the most aggressive um, the, uh, digital banks in Indonesia called Bank Neo Commerce. And I think they invested yeah. into, um, into insurance as well. So basically, they are trying to build a financial ecosystem. 
the difference between them and uh, the likes of of, of GoTo or, or or C Group or Grab is that these guys don't don't have use cases. They 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 are pure financial play. So so the question is that um, whether that kind of play would eventually work in Southeast Asia. Um, so so this is what people have been debating about. Yeah. So the SCB. The SCB, sorry, oh, sorry, just one more point. The SCB investment, um, I, I don't know exactly what's happening behind the scene. Uh, is it that SCB wants to get into Indonesia or is, um, is SCB want to help Apolaco go into Thailand? So, or is just a, just a play of um, of, um, of Apolaco getting massive um, funds at very cheap cost, just like, uh, what's, what's the other company? Atomi, the, the other Binal Palette player. Has I think recently it sounds like that, honestly. Yeah, Atomi signed up with the, the other SCB, right? Standard Chartered Bank, yeah. $500 million yeah. credit line at a very low cost. I, I think that sounds more likely because when I was when I look at the company and look at some of the information I've been reading about them, I, the narrative, which I don't really like, is like, oh, we're a big finance company and we are attacking the $600 million, 600 million people population, which you hear that narrative all the time, which I think now more and more, you have to be a bit more specific if you're driving real value. To me, so to me, it sounds like a cash grab. It's just I don't think they have a very clear strategy. It's very all top line, like pitching top line big numbers to raise big money. That's what it sounds like to me. And they don't have a very but clear. You mean for uh, you know, Akulaku? Akulaku, yes. Akulaku. I think that I, I think they definitely need to be better in communications about uh, about their strategy. So so so, yeah. so so whatever coherence there is, and we just don't hear it. Maybe it's just a pitch then. I, I don't know. But I mean, like you would think you would, they pitched a real strategy that drives value, but it just sounds like a big pitch with big numbers. We have big user base. We're growing fast. We're attacking it, which I don't think stands in fintech specifically, given how fragmented it is. You know, you have to think very individualistically for each country. So I would be pitching something different if I'm trying to drive value, but that's just me, I guess. I so mean, they're, they're the successful ones. I'm not. <laughs> so you did read articles I sent you? I read, I read the articles you sent me, yes. Okay, good. <laughs> Dave, uh, what did you get from the articles, Dave? <laughs> I actually did read some articles uh, about this. Um, I think it's ultimately a question of like, I mean, banking and banking in general, uh, I think it really kind of comes down. It, it, I agree with you. It's a market by market um, dynamic. And what I mean by that is like in certain markets, right? banks make the majority of their revenue from like enterprise and commercial uh yeah. banking right um and so in other markets a large majority of that of their of their business comes from consumer stuff and actually that in, in markets where that's true that's largely government led like the government is basically mandating this i'll give you an example right so china i think has a pretty the banks in china are generally like fairly consumer uh board, relatively speaking, for a bank, but I think that's because the CCP mandates that they, you know, provide decent services, right? Whereas like in a place like Hong Kong, where the majority of the banks make their money based off like um, business, uh, business loans and business, 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 right? Um, the consumer banking experience is awful like if you've ever dealt with yeah. a hong kong bank they are the biggest assholes no matter how much money you have they just jerks yeah. <laughs> so I, I think i think i think adoption of like virtual banks is really going to be a fundamental uh it's going to come down to like basically how much um do the uh endemic banks or the traditional banks in each market value 
um, their consumer businesses, right? So I, I think Indonesia is somewhere in between those two extremes. Um, so it's really a question of like, you know, is the service you're offering better or, you know, is there a market fit, right? Um, I don't, yeah. other than that, I don't really have a strong opinion on this. I did note that it's interesting that they were apparently in talks with Patrick Grove to do a oh. SPAC. There were, there were, there's been reports that they're oh, yes, looking, yes. Yeah. yeah, to do a SPAC oh, listing the the year, with Ketchup. In the last, yeah, whatever. And I know for a fact that like Patrick has at least two blank check companies that he has raised, one in the US, and he's apparently raising one in Singapore as well. So, if, uh, if this man pulls this off, man, I applaud him, man. This guy's yeah. like, this guy's like the master financial engineer, like wizard. He knows he's a his wizard. Game really well, wizard of he's a wizard, man. Yeah, like, I don't know how he does this over and over again. He's a fucking wizard. But I mean, like, yeah. but that kind of like, I don't know, I have my own biases against catch-ups companies and i mostly yeah. think you know being transparent i think yeah patrick's primary skills is salesman and as a financial engineer i think yeah. as an operator their businesses yeah so i mean but i i don't know enough about this business to really make more okay. informed comment on that so I'm just leave it at that uh, but uh i need to dash but um but but i think if you if if for, for any of the, the listeners who are not from Thailand who want to sort of uh, watch what's going on in Southeast Asia in terms of fintech, SCB, Southern Commercial Bank, is definitely a player that you need to watch very, 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 very closely some of the things they're doing. Okay, cool. All right, guys, great episode, and uh, we'll catch you next time. All right, bye, guys. Bye bye. See you later. Bye. Yeah, yeah. After so many times, someone disappointing you, right? Exactly. Exactly. You can't you can't control how someone else behaves. You can only control yep. how you react and your responses to it. I I appreciate that sentiment more these days when I understand the more nuanced context around it. Yeah. <laughs> it's because usually the way people say it, it's very flippant. I think some people do use it flippantly as a weapon. They're like, oh, I don't need to think about how you feel. I don't care. I'm gonna just be me. So they just end up, you know. In, in continue their toxic behavior or something. That's, so, a, that's, also, that's, a, that's also their choice, right? If they want yeah, to, yeah, yeah, you know, correct, I mean, correct. yeah. Yeah. It's the same concept, really. So. The, point, the point is not to listen to it, but to see how you want to deal with it. <laughs> it's, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's how they choose to behave and whatever. Yeah. Well, it's also harder in a workplace when you have, when you're also forced to deal with people like that, right? So the question is like, as a leader, how do you handle it? And this It's very hard. It's very delicate, right? So, Fire them. If you can, yeah, get, the, get, yeah. get rid of them. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like and and do it as fast as possible. Usually, yeah, no, I mean, that's, yeah, I know, but that's actually that's a tough that's a tough call because you also want to keep difficult people because they do like sometimes if you make it work they contribute very well vastly to things that a lot of people can't do in the organization, right? So it's a very uh, fine line to walk. I don't it depends. Know that, I don't know, man. There's like there's some like pretty good arguments for not having those kinds of people on your team because it just costs way too much. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Unless they're like the true, I don't know, like 1,000x engineer that you have on staff, it's pretty hard to justify those kinds of people. But even, yeah, but even, you know, well, from like an engineering perspective, that's, uh, yeah, that's, it's, there's, there's no black or white of how things get engineered, right? So, yeah. I mean, uh, well, an engineer will say something different probably. We'll, it, yeah. But then you talk to like, a, you talk to enough engineers, <laughs> they will all have different opinions. So, but um, I don't know. I had this like salesperson on staff once who was just like a total pain in the ass. Yeah. And like, 
She accounted for probably 20% of the top line on any given month. Uh, and like at the time, the justification was like, well, you know, like she's just set up high maintenance that she takes about 20% of my time. Mm. And, you know, that's so I, at the time I was like, ah, it's probably fair. You know, 20% revenue, 20 from my management attention. But then like, I just like, I just didn't really consider like how much like pain and suffering she basically caused for the rest of the organization, right? Like, mm, like yeah. 20% of my time, but then it was like, it's like, you know, 5% of the ops manager's time. And then like none of the other yeah. salespeople liked her. They all complained and whinged mm. about her. It was like 10% of their time spent just whinging about her. And I'm just like, yeah. oh, she's got to Yeah. No, I think when, when you drag down the organization, well, that's when, that's what happens when your culture gets uh, poisoned and you're in trouble, man. It's hard to turn those things around in a timely manner, right? So anyway, 